0: This is episode number 495 with Greg Kokio, technology manager at Amazon and 2020 LinkedIn top voice for AI and data science. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best-selling author on deep learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by the concise and articulate Gary Gregoire Kokkio, but you may know him simply as Greg Kokkio, LinkedIn's reigning top voice for AI and data science. When he's not sharing succinct summaries of both technically oriented and commercially oriented AI developments with his 70,000 LinkedIn followers, Greg's a technology manager at Amazon's global headquarters in Seattle. Originally from Haiti, Greg obtained his degrees in industrial engineering and engineering management from the University of Florida before settling into a series of management level process engineering roles. Today's episode is well-suited to listeners at any stage in their data science journey, as even while discussing cutting-edge approaches like quantum machine learning, we stay relatively high level. If you manage commercial AI projects or aspire to, today's episode will be of particular interest since a recurring focus in the episode is on how to get a return on investment in AI projects and in AI startups. All right, you ready for another awesome episode? Let's go. Greg, welcome to the program. I'm so excited to have you here. I've heard so much about you and I can't wait to learn from you on the show. How you doing and where are you calling in from?
1: John, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm super happy to be here as well. I'm calling from Seattle, Washington. So yeah, 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 yeah. Really nice.
0: How's it going out there? Pandemic uh, starting to go away. Things are opening up.
1: Absolutely. We're starting to see an adjustment in uh, no, people's normal lives. So uh, we're starting to see the normal things coming out. So restaurants are opening, uh, nice. the gyms are opening, no, no problem. Um, simply a lot of people are taking the chances of getting vaccinated, doing the right thing, of course. So uh, yeah, yeah. it's great to see, to feel like you don't have to, to, to get so rigid with the rules. So I'm feeling a little yeah. bit more normal now. That side is more traffic now.
0: So (laughs) yeah, exactly. That was one of the there's definitely been a few great things about the pandemic. Like here in New York, especially in the beginning, like April 2020, I could run around, bike around, anywhere I wanted. There was never any traffic. If you needed to get somewhere in a car, it happened
1: instantly. Exactly. Uh, And now
0: we're back to our six mile an hour slog.
1: Yeah. Takes me twenty five minutes to get to the office. And with traffic, you can, you can triple that time, easy. So, yep.
0: Yeah. Um, I've only been out to Seattle once, but I really enjoyed it. I was there for one night. Um, I'd been skiing and, oh man, I can't even remember where I went skiing, but there was a huge snowstorm a couple of years ago, maybe a year before the pandemic. And uh, wow, I can't believe I can't remember the mountain, but there's beautiful skiing out there in the Rockies. And it was about a two-hour drive into Seattle, and I flew out of there. So stayed one night. I don't know. Didn't really see much of the city.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But
0: it cool. seems like a really nice place
1: to live. You're not alone because when I showed up here, I was it was right in the middle of pandemic. Uh, oh. Two weeks later, it was like, hey, everybody needs to stay home. Can't see anyone. Ah. So really, my my training at work was remote, <laughs> and uh, never had a chance to explore. So hopefully this year, you know, we're gonna start by the end of next this. By the end of this year and into next year, we'll get to explore a little bit more. So that's one thing I'm looking forward to.
0: Nice. So you moved out to Seattle to work at Amazon. Yes. Um, and that's their biggest office. Yeah, main office
1: in Seattle. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so, yeah. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about your work. But first, I want to talk about uh, how we know each other. So. Harpreet Sahota, who was on episode 457, uh, I kind of was aware of you through him because you show up in his happy hours. I haven't been to his happy hours, but I he posts photos from there, and so I see your face. And so you've been on my radar for a little while. I was like, you know, I can't wait to like have the opportunity to talk to Greg and see if he wants to be on the Super Data Science Podcast. And then... You were at Data Science Go in April. So Data Science Go is the conference affiliate of the Super Data Science Podcast. And uh, I reached out to the Data Science Go organizers and I said, have you had any speakers recently that were absolutely amazing because I'd love to get them on the Super Data Science show? They recommended you. And I was like, great. I asked you right away because I was like, I've known about Greg for months. (laughs) And now finally I get to have you on the show. Um, oh, you've also been on Harpreet's podcast, right? You've been on his data, his Artists of Data Science podcast. You're talking about product management.
1: Um, yeah, that's uh, that's right. It's it's such an honor, and I and I think the Data Science Go team uh, for for this referral, I, I I'm truly uh, humbled by that. And you know, who can miss Harpreet's uh, happy hour? I can't. I can't <laughs> miss this, right? So uh, I try my best to be there every Friday. It's such a very uh, a great um, environment to discuss data science uh, for data science folks and non-data science folks. So it's very welcoming. So I I truly appreciate uh, being there and learning from everyone participating there. And uh, thanks for finding me there too. So uh, now I'm on the Super Data Science. uh, uh, Yeah, you're here. It's happening. Yeah, that's great.
0: So you are a prolific content creator. And this is kind of, you know, see you pop up, And then I see you just, I guess, it's like a second degree connection on LinkedIn. Initially, I see tons of content because every day you're posting really valuable content. You post really great data science blog posts. You post academic papers and you write summaries of everything you post. But for academic papers in particular, it's really helpful because you kind of, you bring home the main point of that paper. Um, You post courses, you post textbooks, and people like it. So you've got 70,000 LinkedIn followers at the time of recording. By the time this is live, it's probably <laughs> going to be way bigger. And, um, and you've been recognized for it. It isn't just the quantity of people. It isn't just me being the host of the show. In twenty, You were recognized in 2020 as a LinkedIn top voice in data and artificial intelligence. So I don't know if you're going to have anything to say because I'm probably just embarrassing you.
1: Man, I'm starting to feel my head get so big, but (laughs) it might explode. So, but yeah, it's uh, for me, you know, when I, especially research papers, for example, right? So they can be a pain to read, but I like the short ones, short ones, meaning 10 pages or less. And um, what I do, especially in the summarize, uh, summary section uh, of my post is to provide somebody with much less time. To kind of skim through and understand the content of the document, but also give people an idea of what my thought process is after reading the the paper. And I'm also hoping myself for somebody providing me an opinion that might be way different than, than what I'm expressing. So, and I and I and I and I'm aware that I could to- be totally wrong. And at the end of the day, um, you know, when I when I have comments from people after a post, I learn. I learn either way. So uh, it's it's a great uh, exercise and uh, one I hope I can take beyond just uh, LinkedIn, because there are other channels also uh, that uh, can harbor this type of content that people can take advantage of.
0: Nice. Well, yeah, I greatly appreciate what you're doing for the community. And of course, we'll have, like we do for all guests, we'll have links to your profile in the show notes. And at the end of the program, we'll talk about all the ways that people can stay in touch with you i actually know with you there's more ways than usual including lots of opportunities to speak directly with you in any given week so that's really exciting people will have to hang around to hear about that
1: Absolutely. um
0: so yeah so we just talked about how you moved to seattle in the pandemic so relatively recently started working at amazon but you also had other roles uh you've been working for years uh working on kind of process engineering and optimization, right? So mm-hmm. at Lonza, at Avery Dennison, and you even have, you have formally educated in industrial engineering and engineering management. And I actually, I found out just before we started recording that it's kind of an interesting story as to how you ended up in the US. So you came over to study, but you kind of got stuck here.
1: Stuck in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I say it's uh, uh, somewhat uh, some sort of luck that came out of an unfortunate event. And uh, uh, when uh, the earthquake happened in Haiti, uh, you know, I was about to end my uh, master's degree. And, you know, whether bachelor's or master's, you get you have a certain period of time to stay to look for a job and have that hire accept to sponsor a work visa for you. If you didn't find anyone that period expires, you would have to go back home. So with that unfortunate event, the US government, which is the earthquake, which was the earthquake, uh, the US government allowed us to stay leveraging a a temporary work permit. And that's what I've used to kind of take some stress down, that stress of having that six month period of time to look for a job, to taking my time to look for companies who will accept uh, this temporary work permit to 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 hire me, and that's how I got into to the uh, you know professional world, which I'm super grateful for.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh it's really great to have you here. Obviously, I, you're an enormous force in the data science community, and uh, I mean, I guess that same at least in terms of the content creation, I guess you could do that from anywhere in the world, but yeah, I mean, the I think. The U S is lucky to have you uh, I appreciate that.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Um, so, uh, beyond your kind of day to day work, I understand that you do lots on the side, so you provide not only in content creation, uh, not only in your day job at Amazon, but you also can help people out in other ways on the side. So do you want to tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I talk to a lot of startups and um, to, to help them grow, help them identify use cases, help them identify uh, a product market fit and things like that. So uh, providing some uh, advising to startups is something that I like to do on the side. So I really make my, my time flexible. Um, you know, it's amazing when with proper planning, uh, inside of 24 hours, how much, how much things you can put out. Right. So I try my best to leave a section here and there to, to help out. And I do have a plan in the near future, which is, uh, starting to reach out local universities, uh, with, uh, you know, these incubators at university level to start offering my help there and, uh, start building a network and helping, uh, companies, especially, uh, AI focused, uh, startups, uh, to help them, uh, kickstart and even channel them through uh, um, uh, funding as well. So I do have a a list of uh, contacts contacts who can uh, help uh, with funding as well, Uh, given that there's traction, uh, there's a clear plan for growth. There's been, you know, uh, some historical performance and things like that. Depending on what level these startups are, um, we can find some some fundings for them.
0: Very cool. So if somebody has an idea, a pitch deck that they put together, they
1: should just reach out to you? They can. So it will be more of a let's launch it and let's get traction before we can start about, talk about, okay, let's try to get funding because then you need to really walk a little bit because, you know, it depends on the, the people I talk to. Typically, they want to see some traction, some growth and things like that. So before they yeah. kind of. the bullet people definitely want sales you you have yes uh, you have to have a, a team uh you have to have the proper metrics you have to understand the market uh and things like that And uh start start running really i mean start walking before you start running
0: nice this episode is brought to you by super data science yes our online membership platform for transitioning into data science and the namesake of the podcast itself. In the Super Data Science platform, we recently launched our new 99-day data scientist study plan, a cheat sheet, with week-by-week instructions to get you started as a data scientist in as few as 15 weeks. Each week, you complete tasks in four categories. The first is Super Data Science courses to become familiar with the technical foundations of data science. The second is hands-on projects to fill up your portfolio and showcase your knowledge in your job applications. The third is a career toolkit with actions to help you stand out in your job hunting. And the fourth is additional curated resources such as articles, books, and podcasts to expand your learning and stay up to date. To devise this curriculum, we sat down with some of the best data scientists as well as many of our most successful students and came up with the ideal 99-day data scientist study plan to teach you everything you need to succeed so you can skip the planning and simply focus on learning. We believe the program can be completed in 99 days and we challenge you to do it. Are you ready? Go to superdatascience.com challenge, download the 99 day study plan and use it with your Super Data Science subscription to get started as a data scientist in under a hundred days. And now let's get back to this amazing episode. Well, that's really cool. So yeah, another way that you are contributing to everyone to this entire uh, economic ecosystem. It's brilliant. So not only through startups, but also through your professional work, I gather that you have a lot of experience in making the most of artificial intelligence. So you have a really great sense that you've honed over the years of how you can get a return on a commercial investment in an AI project. So do you want to talk a bit about that or maybe kind of your top tips for other people getting a good return on their investment in AI?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, for me, uh, AI, once you have people, uh, and and, and let me try to make sure I understand the question. And you're talking about like some sort of best framework to get um, a, a return on AI investments, right? Yeah, if you have something like yeah. that, that would be amazing. Yeah. yeah, so so one thing one thing I I, I keep talking about and, and I that really caught my eyes is uh, this company called Element AI.
0: They, Element AI, that's yeah. uh Joshua Bengio's company in Montreal,
1: right? Yes, yeah. so yeah. they build this AI maturity framework, which I think everybody should use. A lot of times people wanna say, Uh, oh, uh, I can leverage AI to get myself to the next step. And then they start and then they get stuck. The first step to me to understand how AI can help you is one, realize it's a tool that can be used amongst different tools. Uh, It requires a mindset, a culture, mindset change, and culture that needs to start from the top. Uh, Now, another thing too is before you do anything, you have to be able to Uh, evaluate your maturity level. So which I'm coming back to Element, which has this great framework. uh, It's a five by five framework uh, that you can check where you are on the maturity level. So whether you're exploring, you're experimenting, you're formatting or optimizing or transforming uh, a, a, a section of your company or your whole org, and then you have those different section of your organization that you need to uh, measure against that. You have strategy, uh, technology, people, data, and uh, governance. So once you understand this, then you need to understand how to separate the use cases. Sometimes we focus on the very short-term deliverables, typically that are tied to uh, money, uh, which is, let's quickly win more revenues by leveraging AI to better uh, uh, provide recommendations to our users. Or more long-term strategic transformation of your business, which is more like, how can I uh, improve the user experience when they go to my website? How can I you know, improve the customer service experience once you know we start kick-starting this process and things like that so those are the more long-term transformational things once you understand these use cases you can understand how to go about it with that framework i think it's one of the best that i've seen out there
0: nice that is a very specific framework that will really help people out now i just realized that so we were going to get to audience questions later but I think we've actually answered one of the audience people's questions already. So Bernard Tumanjong, um, whose last name I'm surely mispronouncing who's a software engineer and machine learning engineer. He reached out to ask you on the podcast, um, what framework should organizations consider to formulate a stable, enduring long-term AI vision? And I'm pretty sure you just nailed it.
1: Yeah. 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 I think, I think I, I remember seeing something like that in, in, in to me it's, it's the best one in, this is the first step, in my opinion, to understand what kind of return on investment you want to have. And uh, you have to really learn how to to even crawl, right? Before you uh, get to project execution and things like that. So, absolutely. Nice.
0: All right, so let's go right into the audience questions. So we had Bernards there already. The next one is from Serge Massis, who is someone that I've known for years. He was the MC at a talk that I gave at an open data science conference back when conferences were still in person. And he's the author of Interpretable Machine Learning. Mm -hmm. He has a great question for you um, that is relevant to his background, but I think will be relevant to a lot of listeners as well, which is that Serge is a startup founder. And so he's interested to know from you, based on your experience advising AI startups, what data science skills, or attitude is most needed to succeed with an AI startup?
1: Yeah, that's I, I, I like that question. And I think uh, the attitude, especially even skills, um, you, we can put all of the professional skills in the box and uh, still apply those. They're very helpful. We all know them, the kind of skills that a good data science uh, needs. But when it comes to startup, I think, uh, in terms of attitude, you have to be able to understand uh, what it takes to move slow and move fast, right? So when it comes to uh, a startup, just like any other company, you have to have a vision, a mission, a strategy that it te- explains how you will go about that vision and mission, and also your tactics, So as a data scientist, you have to be good at all of those, understanding the long-term strategy and also understanding what kind of tactics are available to you or you can use to reach this long-term or to execute this long-term strategy. And being quick in the tactics helps you iterate fast, help you try different things. And which is the core of a data scientist, right? They try, they're explorers they find things, they discover, they try, they 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 confirm things. So uh being quick on these tactics is what will get you uh uh above water as a startup up to you know uh future success.
0: Nice. That's a great answer. And I guess with that iterating tactically, that's to solve both your machine learning problems as well as your business problems, right?
1: Correct, correct. It doesn't change. It is the same thing as we were saying. Uh, an AI startup or non AI startup is the same thing from a business perspective. You want to be quickly uh, iterating uh, because you want to be faster at that point.
0: Nice. All right. Well, that was a really clear answer. Um, Thank you for that, Greg. So next one is from Kenneth McCabe, who is a data analyst and also an MBA candidate. And so Kenneth is wondering what data science methodologies and models you've used most in your career. So I guess, you know which yeah. ones have been most useful to you?
1: Yeah, um, mostly in my career, I've seen uh, cl- classifications. Uh, uh, so supervised models, uh, is, it, is it a cat or a dog? So just being uh, very uh, uh, high level here. One of my past uh, companies were leveraging a computer vision to determine whether uh, the product was uh, good or bad. Uh, and the product was flying on the conveyor belt at high speed. So uh, really classification is really so labeled data uh, was uh, a leverage. Hopefully uh, over the next uh, couple of years, I've adventure a little bit more about uh, uh, on unsupervised um, models. Uh, but you know it could be you know, even an LLP uh, performs, uh, perform different tasks uh, there as well. So it could be uh, something like uh, summarization uh, or uh, translation, uh, name, uh, entity, uh, recognition. Uh, those are the different things that, I, uh, that I've seen so far.
0: Nice, very cool. Yeah. Um, thank you for that one. And uh, we definitely have time for a couple more here. So um, here's a good one from Nikolai Kurbatov, who is an AI project manager, as well as a data scientist. Nikolai is based in Russia and he's engaged with me a lot on the podcast. He always has great questions. So he asks, what is the most common thing um, that you've experienced in terms of trade-offs for ML models pushed to production? So in most cases, we have to choose between quality and speed, um, but he's also interested if there are any particular trade-offs related to uh, implementation.
1: Yeah, that's an that's a- Awesome question, I really like that one. And the most common that I've seen is trade-offs in terms of risk. Uh, Typically, we want to uh, uh, leverage AI to remove the human factor. And um, whether it's human or machine, there's always room for error. And sometimes you will have a trade-off between uh, systems where uh, humans tend to be a little bit more accurate but slower versus a machine, which is faster and a little bit less accurate and try to understand what are the risks of that lower accuracy. So being able to translate that into a uh, business risk uh, is the trade-off that you like to talk about with your stakeholders. If machine predicted wrong, what is the risk to the business? And can the business support it? And most importantly, how can the business mitigate when that error shows up? What are the processes? What are the tools? Who's responsible for capturing this uh, uh, error? Who's responsible for addressing it? And who's responsible for continuously training these models to make sure that these errors don't increase or improve over time?
0: Right, what a great answer. I didn't, I, well, I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting that. And that was a great answer. I love that. Um, And so I guess uh, one of the things that people could be thinking about specifically, perhaps um, following on from what you said, is uh, when they're retraining their models or having the models in in production to have uh, systems in place to be looking out for feature drift, to be looking out for inputs changing beyond the inputs, the range of inputs that we saw in training the model
1: yeah absolutely. and And you know even prior to prior to deploying, you want to have alignment with business side as well. all all parties involved involved in terms of what is the expected uh, error rate would be. So say, for example, uh, your precision threshold might be no more than two percent, right because you really care about precision for your use case. and right. um, you want to make sure you stay within there. but even aligning on that two percent, is important because uh, prior to automation, you had a higher precision or a lower threshold, right? Because of humans who are doing it, they're doing it slower, they're doing it with more accuracy and things like that. So therefore now you're moving to a machine which has a little bit more room to make errors. And how do you make people align on this? That when the machine will make more errors because it's faster, that trade-off, how do you mitigate these errors? What does it mean in terms of loss uh, of business when you move, you know, precision threshold from 1% to 2%, maybe a small number, but it's a huge risk for a big business.
0: Right. So if, if we like kind of just play around with some numbers here. So if you had a 1% error rate when humans were completely in charge of this process, so like one in a hundred customers complains. Mm -hmm. Um, But now all of a sudden with this automated process, Um, it's faster, um, it's probably less less expensive than having humans, but it has this error rate of uh, 2 in 100 or 1 in 50. Mm -hmm. So we're doubling our error rate and so it's we're going to have twice as many complaints to our customer service center, what impact is that going to have or um, we're going to have twice as many returns Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's this um, business needs to be prepared and you need to make sure that you've costed
1: out those risks, I guess, right? Exactly, have the right processes to mitigate those things when they show up. Uh, it's all about downstream actions when it comes to leveraging ML, uh, uh, AI tools and things like that. What are you doing with that, with that prediction uh, downstream? And uh, how does it really make your business better overall? That's what this is about.
0: Nice, love that answer. Um, all right. We've got one last audience question here. It's from Yusuf Rabi yeah. um, or Robbie. It's probably Yusuf Robbie, <laughs> And he's a machine learning researcher. Mm-hmm. So he asks, other than data improvements in terms of quality and quantity, what provides the biggest bang for the buck in terms of improvements for an AI vision system? So he's very interested. I guess he's aware of your experience with uh, machine vision projects. And
1: yeah. Yeah, so uh, this question is quite interesting because uh, he did hit the the best bank for the buck, right? You're talking about a computer vision system and you're already feeding it quality uh, images and things like that. Uh, I think the next bank for your buck is taking a look at the whole cost of ownership of your system, right? Can you improve on computation power, right? Are you spending too much? Do you have any opportunities to... Uh, use less computation, use a better model uh, that helps you uh, compute less. Uh, overall infrastructure, uh, can you improve uh, integration of systems to uh, lower the cost of maintaining it? Um, and then you can improve on monitoring, right? So uh, are you make, how are you making sure that this computer uh, vision system is sustainable, uh, can be upgraded very fast? Uh, does it have a, a a monitoring bank uh, of data that's continuously looked at uh, to to make sure that um, uh, you know uh, this this uh, data is used to make it better or train a different model. Is there a, a really great MLops uh, mechanism to maintain that system? Uh, really, that's the only thing I can see because once you have great data. Um, I don't see what else. Um, can there be additional data that you can collect? <laughs> uh, you Even can, more. Yeah, because at some point you will find that uh, you have quality data and you're stuck at a certain um, accuracy level that you cannot go past because you can't improve on the data anymore. Well, what other data can you go out there and grab and label and feed into this model to make it better? So additional data collection is another way to look at it. So I, I see three. Monitoring mechanism, additional data collection, and improving the total cost of ownership. So those are the three areas that you can take a look at.
0: Nice, a wonderful answer. I mean, you have great answers to all of these questions. Appreciate it. Uh, which uh, leads me to my kind of big series of questions. So uh, in researching for this show, I discovered that you're developing quite a bit of an interest in quantum machine learning. <laughs> so I've seen you posting about it a lot. Um, I see that you have a certificate from IBM on quantum computing. And so I think it's a fascinating topic and I'd love to pick your brain about it. So I guess, first of all, what is Quantum computing? How is it different from um, traditional computing?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I will attempt to answer this as Greg Coquillo trying to understand this complex world of science and the curious Greg Coquillo and me who will try to help everyone else listening to this uh, understand. So uh, I guess quantum computing is the idea of exploring the uh, world of quantum mechanics and leveraging these characteristics to build a computer that you know does just that compute uh, compared to a classical computer. When compared to a classical computer, uh, a classical computer is equipped with bits who can be either zero or one. Uh, however, a quantum uh, bit, which is for short, qubit, can be both zero and one through a phenomenon called superposition. Uh. Um, This is something that allows uh, quantum computing through the um, uh, manufacture of quantum circuits, which are gates that allows you to perform certain instructions called algorithms to compute them faster than normal because you have two states at the same time. So you can reduce computational power uh, uh, by millions, right? So it depends on how complex, uh, uh, the the most complex factorizations or uh, the most complex um, search algorithms and things like that can be performed much faster with quantum computing. And the last thing I'd like to say is with quantum computing, which is still, even though we've been working at it for so long seemingly, it's still at its infancy, still no one knows what will come out of it at the end. Um, because it's a very noisy environment. Um, we just don't know how things will come through. But in the end, of, at the, in the end, what you will find is that there will be just another way to compute on top of what you already know: CPU, GPU, CPU. Now you can start expecting QPU and mm, it will be it can be focusing on specific use cases that may want much powerful computational powers and we can talk about different industries that can leverage these, so drug development, uh, biology to synthesize new materials, uh, material science, a very complex uh uh things uh uh very complex use cases that require simulations for airplane makers and things like that uh that require huge amount of data huge amount of combinations to simulate the right way to perform something quantum computing can be helpful there
0: cool i i did not know i just hadn't it hadn't occurred to me and i'm never going to forget you just pointed out something to me that now is so obvious that QPUs, these quantum processing units, which are, as you say, in their infancy today, these will be appended to a classical computing system. So you'll have that CPU still running the operating system on the computer and letting you look things up in stack overflow. Um, But in the same way that today for training a deep learning model or maybe even production with a very big machine vision model, we will have particular operations sent off to the GPU to run on that specialized processing device. So in the same way, there's going to be a relatively small number or narrow set of tasks that we say, okay, this is perfect for a quantum processing unit and we send it over there and then we get the returned the mm-hmm. results back.
1: That's correct. I, I do believe there will be uh, something like that for sure. And also, I'm not... Uh, uh, You know, eliminating the fact that we may also see a quantum uh, computer on a circuit board, right? So just like we saw with the transistors, uh, we want to make sure we build systems with millions of qubits. I think right now the biggest system that claimed quantum supremacy has 76 qubits only. When you compare that with a chip uh, for a classical computer that has millions of transistors, we're way out uh, from that achievement, but we believe that it can be done. So you'll see that at some point as well.
0: Cool. So in machine learning in particular, I guess maybe you already did give some examples of potential applications like, um, creating materials. I guess we could be doing that in kind of a machine learning driven way. Um, is that when you were going through those examples, I guess those were like kinds of, yeah, yeah, those were machine
1: yeah yeah, exactly. They, they, they can be seen as machine learning, but then again, you can leverage you can leverage quantum to build a quantum neural net, right that adjusts the weights faster with less data, you know, things like that. Um, right. uh, you could leverage it to build a classific- uh classification model um, in my m- particular one, um, which is optimization. Uh, use cases. So the most complex flight systems or flight scheduling systems can leverage quantum computers with uh, as a hybrid um, with a classical computer to optimize weights for a newer network that is used to uh, you know uh, predict flight schedules or something like that. So uh, this is where the hybrid quantum um, and classical can come in very handy. Uh, one of the fallbacks or uh, uh, for our quantum computer is it's not as precise as uh, classical computers. It's good at giving you a oh, probability yeah. range, uh, a probability that this is it. But in terms of saying, this is it for sure, the classical computer is better. So in terms of, you know, leveraging both as a hybrid system, you can get bigger bang for your buck. And this is where I believe a lot of companies are going towards, which is leveraging a hybrid system of quantum and um, classical to tackle the problems now, instead of waiting five, 10 years down the road to say, Oh, quantum is ready for you now to use. People are getting really smart uh, building custom systems with these two uh, to tackle uh, today's problems.
0: Super cool. Well, I've learned a ton from that answer, Greg. So I'm really glad that I asked it. I'm glad that I stumbled across this uh, developing interest of yours. Yeah. Um, So do you have any particular recommendations of uh, tools or resources for people to learn about quantum computing or maybe even quantum machine learning themselves?
1: um uh penny lane quantum machine yeah i've come
0: across that it's a good
1: one um i would say um ibm kiskit is another one that i can refer anybody who wants to how do you spell that kiskit kiskit q-i-s-k-i-t
0: ah all right yeah Yeah. i'm glad i have you pronouncing that for me (laughs) nice kiskit um, sweet. All right. Well, I'm gonna check those out right after the show. Yeah. Um I'm actually I'm so all of this, you know, I get you on the super data science show, you think you're doing something for the audience, but really all of
1: this was just for me. Man, you're mind behind this, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, because
0: I'm giving a talk on September tenth, an intro, it's just a twenty minute talk, but it's an intro to quantum machine learning. I'm giving it at the machine learning conference, which is gonna be in person in New York City. Mm. Um at this cool nightclub called Two Thirty Fifth Avenue, but it's it's there all day. It's not like a party in the evening, but they like they've rented out the nightclub from like eight AM to six PM. Wow! And doing this twenty minute talk and intro to quantum machine learning, and I don't know anything about it. <laughs> Almost everything I know, I just learned from you.
1: You will um, not be uh, you know, you will not regret visiting Penny Lane for sure. Nice. Uh, you'll that find like, what
0: you need to know. That was actually you know it was stumbling across Penny Lane that led me to think you know what it looks so well explained here. I bet I could do a talk on this. And then I submitted the talk and when they accepted it, I was like, oh no.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now you're fully stressed. Now you truly (laughs) need to rely on Penny Lane. So yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Let me know if you need help with that too. So I'm happy to, you know. Yeah, I may um, need to fly you in. (laughs) (laughs) No, from a preparation standpoint, for sure.
0: Um, Awesome. Yeah, I would definitely appreciate your feedback on that. Okay, sweet. So... All right. You've answered so many great questions from me and from the audience. We've got to learn a bit about your background as well. Um, do you have any uh, books, uh, a book recommendation for us?
1: Um, yeah. So the, there's one that I'm reading right now that uh, uh, I've been very slow like digesting it. It's called Algorithms to Live By ah. uh, by uh, Brian Christian and uh, Tom Griffiths. And uh, it's really uh, an exploration on um, how computer algorithms um, can be applied to our everyday lives. And uh, it can help you solve common decision making problems. So I'll, I'll give you one quick thing. Uh, this book has helped me understand the process of caching better than anything else. Mm. Um, so, and it leveraged the use case of a library. that stores recently uh, rented books in a bin at the entrance of the library versus putting it back in its place because these recently rented books most likely are the most popular ones. And they felt like people could just use them fast as possible instead of having to walk in the back into the sections of the library to look for it. So they cached it at the front desk for people to retrieve as fast as possible so which is an idea of caching in computer. So yeah, that was yeah, a yeah, cool thing to see that what computers do, we do it on a daily lives on and on a daily decision making. And, you know, it's amazing that we're able as a human species to be creative enough to teach a machine to do what we do on a daily basis. So I think that was fascinating. So anybody can yeah. enjoy this book. And
0: caching can be hugely useful in machine learning. So with my company, we have this very computationally expensive process for taking natural language documents and converting them into this vector representation, so this one-dimensional vector of numbers. And that process, if we were to try to run that every single time we ran our models to make a prediction, it would take like days. You'd be mm-hmm. sitting at your computer, uh, you'd make a query and you'd have to wait days to get a result. But we can cache those vectors uh, and have them readily available. And then so we can give you results in an instant as opposed to in days. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so this caching idea, the library book analogy, um, yeah, can be hugely, if, if people aren't aware of caching, I definitely recommend learning about it, either from the algorithms to live by book Um, Mm -hmm. or more generally, because it can really, it can be a game changer for productionization of
1: your models. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Nice. All right, Greg, we're reaching the end of the program, but I promised at the beginning of the show (laughs) that people would be left with opportunities to get in touch with you uh, in real time. So what are the best ways? Obviously, we've got your LinkedIn, Uh, I've already mentioned that, so people should follow Greg on LinkedIn, that'll be in the show notes, um, where his profile is if you want to follow him. And in addition to that, where can people find you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to catch me live, you'll find me definitely every Friday uh, around 2.30 central time, I believe, at the Happy Hour, uh, Data Science Happy Hour, uh, hosted by the one and only Harpreet Uh, that's on Fridays. Then, if you want to catch me on Saturdays, um, they're uh, Saturdays around 9 a.m. PST. Sorry for giving you time zones all over the place, but this is with my family, the integrated machine learning uh, led by uh, Dr. Tom Ives in uh, life. Uh, uh, Antari. Yeah, so I know
0: who um, he is. I haven't met him yet in person, but we've definitely talked.
1: You, you need and, to talk to and- him too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You should get them on the show. You should get them on the show. Oh, uh, but Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think uh, uh, this is where anybody can find me live and uh, happy to talk to anyone, but also feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, it's uh, fairly manageable. It's been a little bit more challenging lately because of the flood of messages and LinkedIn is not the best UI to manage messages, no, but I will try my not. best to respond to you at some point. So
0: Nice. Well, that's super kind, Greg. I can't believe how much you give to the community, but it's certainly paying off in terms of how many followers you have and the LinkedIn Top Voice Award. So uh, yeah, just Thank you. keep on trucking, Greg. So excited to watch how your career continues to develop and the huge impact that you make on people's lives. And hopefully we'll have the opportunity at some point in the future to have you back on the show and catch up with
1: you. John, I'd be happy to return, but thank you so much for having me for the first time ever. Uh, It's an honor. It's a, a humbling experience, and I'm looking forward to hearing more. But also, most importantly, I'm looking forward to seeing you grow with this great podcast of yours. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Greg. All right. Catch you in a bit. I love how clearly and succinctly Greg answered all the questions I, and the audience, had for him. When we were planning the episode, I thought we had way too many topics to cover, but Greg pops in with a spot-on answer, backed up with a straightforward example, and boom, we're on to the next one. In today's episode, Greg filled us in on Element AI's maturity framework for AI businesses, that AI startup success comes from understanding your long-term business strategy while iterating tactically to solve both machine learning problems and commercial problems, that while machines typically are much faster than people, they tend to be less accurate. So when automating a business process, you need to be sure the business is prepared to mitigate, capture, or address the risks from this that while quantum machine learning is in its infancy, some optimization problems like flight schedule prediction are likely to be revolutionized by quantum processing units in the years to come. In particular, Greg pointed us in the direction of Penny Lane and IBM's Qiskit for getting started with quantum machine learning ourselves. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and the URL for Greg's award-winning LinkedIn profile, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 495. That's superdatascience.com slash 495. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd of course greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel where we have a video version of this episode. To let me know your thoughts on the episode directly, please do feel welcome to add me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tag me in a post to let me know your thoughts on this episode. Your feedback is invaluable for figuring out what topics we should cover next. All right. Thanks to Ivana, Jaime, Mario, and JP on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another amazing episode today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks. And I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.